when I came back, I was doing 42 weeks clinically as a hospitalist, right? Uh, which is which is a lot um, when when you're looking at hospitalist type work. And the the wait times that we would have in our hospital and it, they were outrageous, right? And I had come back from the states. I was down at Cleveland Clinic and other hospitals working. I did some other locums, et cetera. And I came back to Canada and I saw the length of stay of patients, you know, 50, 100, 300 days. And I was, my, my mind was blown. I said, what was going on? Is this a typo? Because, you know, I, I would get calls from insurance companies after 10 days in the hospital saying, no, Dr. Nicor, why is this patient there? And I'd be like, well, they need two more days here. You know, I'm the doctor seeing the patient. You're calling me from the middle of nowhere trying to tell me how I should, you know, uh, why this person's here. It was just, it was a very different um, dynamic. When I came back to Canada, I was like, this just doesn't make sense. What's the logical next step from a career in groundbreaking technology in the early 2000s at IBM? Medicine, of course. My name's Jeff, and this is How It's Med, the podcast where we chat with people who are shaping the future of healthcare and health tech. We chat with founders, inventors, investors, your occasional Olympic hopeful, and so many more people, including this time's guest, Dr. Vipin Nakor. This time around, we rejoin a conversation with this amazing innovator who's been in so many different roles, but no matter what, stays grounded in helping the underserved at every step of the way. And I mean this in every meaning of the word. Last time around, we heard his story as to how he got to where he is in his medical career, and this time around, we begin to explore his current work with Home Care Hub. In this role, Vipin and his team are revolutionizing how we provide seniors with better quality of lives in a tailored way in their home communities. Let's get started. Um, <laughs> but speaking of underserved populations and perhaps solutions that no, don't necessarily deal with, uh, you know, higher technology. You've done some amazing non-tech work uh, for inner city kids. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the story and the new and original goals behind Urban Future Leaders of the World, which has apparently since been renamed to life, which is very hip, very cool. I appreciate the name. Thank you. Thank you. I had some, I had some younger people working <laughs> on rename to make it, uh, make it nice and hip, et cetera. So, uh, but, but yeah, you know, Urban Future Leaders of the World or Uflow, really big part of my life, actually, for for many years. So background on that, you know, I left you know, business school. We sort of talked a little bit about some of my motivations prior to that. Really excited to change the world. And like, it was uh, just an inspiring two years when I was at Yale, amazing classmates and what I learned. And um, of course, I didn't go out to change the world. I went to go to medical school, right? So it was a little bit of a different path. And they're like, go study this cell and know every single thing about it, right? So I had this sort of like inner yearning and craving to do uh, things beyond that as well. But I really had to stay focused, of course. But I also knew I always wanted to do, you know, entrepreneurship, like even you know, coming out of undergrad, we created this MP3 player and we were looking at, you know, this is way before Spotify, this, this MP3 player that locked down. So for me, I always knew I wanted to start something up and I had this yearning to, but doing that during medical school was was not going to be an easy thing. And um, ultimately, I was looking for opportunities to start something impactful. And I had been very inspired by, you know, Paul Farmer's work and what he'd been doing uh, at a global scale and global health, partners in health in Haiti, et cetera. So I was looking for opportunities that 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 um, came along. And I was a 
uh, Schweitzer Fellow, which uh, is a program uh, across the U.S. So I was in medical school in Chicago, second year. They take health professional students to create and you know, work on service projects in various communities, you know, underserved communities uh, in in Chicago or whatever city the program's in. Uh, I created a adolescent health curriculum for low income. Uh, uh, communities in Chicago, and I taught it at you know Kip Charter School. So I'd go, you know, teach about three hours of class Saturday mornings uh, during med school in my second year. And we're at the same time doing a project at, at University of Illinois. And again, I was part of this uh, track uh, called Urban Medicine Program again, where we focused on underserved communities. And we uh, were going around, we we're videotaping people as a part of a project, asking them what the biggest problems there were in their neighborhood. Um, and, and how they feel they could be addressed, et cetera. And I decided one day, said, let me just interview some of my students as part of my UIC med school project at, you know, Kip Charter School. And I took some videos and asked them their problems and their eyes lit up. And I remember, you know, talking to one student, he was so passionate. He knew all the, the problems and, and he was articulate. And, you know, that really sparked, uh, something within me and, uh, it helped me think more and more about it. You know, Schweitzer program is amazing. I'm glad I'm going in and, and helping and we're being empowered. Great experience. But you know, it really made me realize that the problems are best solved by people in the community uh, themselves and that youth themselves have an opportunity and, and are very talented and should have a voice in terms of creating them. And then I started with a whole bunch of other layers, but I you know, started model, uh, you know, studying gangs and how they create community. And I saw Uflow as a uh, opportunity to create really like a, a family-like culture, right? Uh, where the people as part of this team essentially would go out and create their own uh, service projects. So we expanded it to, you know, five cities. We had hundreds of volunteers over the years. Um, yeah, so so that was uh, the story, something that was, you know, something uh, I hold dear to my heart for, for many years. Yeah. yeah. Some of the teachings must have, or learnings must have transferred over to some other work that you do, because a huge part of empowering you, youth is really uh, teaching them to lead effectively a task, which when done well, requires a big amount of uh, emotional intelligence. You've kind of done the same at U of T. Can you tell me more about this vein of work? Yeah, you know, teaching leadership, something that uh, I've done, uh, you know, for for medical students for a long time. And I'm, I'm lucky I had... Uh, you know, a great mentor in medical school, Dr. Dave Mayer, he used to teach, uh, you know, all the sort of, a lot of the soft skills uh, as well. He, he had done a lot of patient safety initiatives, really a, you know, world leader in this. And he was teaching leadership and emotional intelligence and other things at, at, at med school when I was a first year. And I, I was super excited. I just come from business school. I had already, you know, learned a lot of principles and leadership. And I, kind of approached him and talked to him. And he gave me an opportunity when I was a second year to really teach all the med students at UIC. So I got very lucky. Um, so I started teaching, you know, this is you know, over 15 years ago when I was a, when, when I was a med student. And then I kind of carried that through my career. And when I, here at University of Toronto, the last nine years, I've been teaching all the med students, you know, a couple, uh, Couple classes on leadership and emotional intelligence, and we've continued to evolve the curric- evolve the curriculum. And you know, now I bring in various mentors, leadership mentors, who sort of teach my curriculum, uh, various uh, techniques and principles to smaller groups of students. So yeah, it's been exciting. I, I really love doing it. 
Um, it's funny, I mentioned I, I bring in mentors. Some of these mentors are like CEOs of hospitals, like you know Andy Smith from Sunnybrook and other amazing leaders. I mean, they don't need to learn anything from me, right? Uh, uh, people that I really uh, look up to as, as leaders. So I'm, I'm lucky that uh, they've sort of agreed to, to help out in this capacity. And yeah, it's been, been a fun part of my career. What drives this, um, or what continues to drive this, I guess, um, push to teach leadership and emotional intelligence? From my perspective, I, I think that it's especially relevant given the advent of uh, newer tools that will allow for more of the diagnostic process to be done with the aid of AI algorithms, intake forms, etc., so does that inform the urgency with which you're pushing these teaching or is your motivation purely from the perspective of what you've learned before? Jeff, you're just going to have to take the class to learn why we're doing oh, it. Oh, come on. That's when we spend the first few minutes of the class talking about why leadership is so important in healthcare. So you'll just have to take the class. Um, in all seriousness, uh, you, you, you hit the nail on the head on the, uh, really around the, the, the need for leaders uh, again, you know, it's it's a longer answer, but very briefly, there's a need. We need leaders in healthcare, uh, uh, and, and I teach this to the physicians specifically. You know, for physicians, uh, we have in leadership roles is going to be only helpful for us as a system. There's so many problems and daunting problems. I talked about the lack of sort of communication between different parties, and if, if physicians took on leadership roles, we desperately need them. On the emotional intelligence side, it's interesting. You know, you have top athletes who, you know, have coaches on emotional intelligence and, you know, us physicians, we're dealing with people's lives. And I bring in examples of how, you know, the teaching of emotional intelligence, really, it's it's the difference between life and death, right? So this is really important stuff for, um, for our medical training, and it's largely been neglected. So that's one uh, uh, other motivation for me. As well. mm -hmm. Okay. So take a bit of a pivot. You've made some pretty impactful statements uh, as the chief medical officer of TD Bank uh, and on brand with you and the work that you've done before is the work that you mentioned supporting uh, through TD's ready commitment to its communities. Uh, what's the best way that you would summarize the favorite parts of your work in such an unconventional role? Yeah, I've really loved my role at uh, TD. I'm now my fifth, fifth year or so at uh, doing this work. And uh, yeah, the TD team has been incredible to work with. What I do is their chief medical director. It's actually through a program at Cleveland Clinic uh, where we do this for over a dozen companies. And the idea is, you know, Cleveland Clinic's, I've been with them now 13 years. And uh, if you're going to get consulting and you want advisory on health, it makes sense that you have a Cleveland Clinic team helping you. Right. So that's what we've been able to do uh, in some of the, the areas. There's, again, so many different areas I've touched on in uh, across TD and, uh, you know, the TD Ready Commitment you mentioned, which is centered around our sort of giving back. And I was very involved on, you know, the healthcare focus that we have there. I'm involved in terms of, you know, what gets covered sometimes, doesn't wellness strategies, what type of, uh, you know, innovations or, or pilots that we might work on, et cetera. Uh, and of course, public health issues, so many different ways. And in public health, of course, you know, that's, that includes COVID. So it was a very uh, busy time during that time as well. So. Mm -hmm. 
So speaking of COVID, what was the COVID-19 pandemic experience like for you as someone who is steeped in so many different roles that were all touched by this life-changing and role-changing event? Yeah, it's, uh, it was, it was quite the time, uh, let's just say, um, I tell people, you know, we ask organizations, et cetera, to have a pandemic plan. You know, I did not have a personal pandemic plan. You know, I was sort of already kind of stretched and I hadn't been prepared for uh, a world where all my different roles would grow overnight. So it was quite the, the couple of years, something, uh, you know, certainly we'll, we'll, we'll never forget. And just to give you sort of context on, you know, 2020, I remember, um, you know, I was out, uh, was celebrating, uh, New Year's with the night before, uh, 2019 and thinking about the next week I was on call in the hospital, uh, January 1st. And I was thinking, oh, be a busy week ahead and you know i'll get to 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 rest up the week after and uh yeah so go to work i'm I'm on call all week and then pretty much just worked non-stop from that january first date not knowing what was going to happen uh, of course and you know during that time uh, we talked about this too you know muhammad asadi laria you know who had uh uh you know I'd, i'd been a mentor too and i know he's a close friend of yours and when the, the plane went down in Iran, that was just a few days after. Uh, so it was a really, you know, tough time those first few days. And for those who don't know, you know, just a remarkable human being. And he was an MD, PhD at, at, at U of T. I just read, written his letters to Stanford and a whole bunch of other places as well. Just incredible guy. So um, it was such a loss. And, uh, you know, that first week was just, a blur from that perspective. And then probably just a couple of days after that, I heard about what was happening in China. And then a couple of days after that, you know, I was just thrown right into the work at TD. And because we have a lot of employees who would come from, uh, you know, they were coming from China or their family members were coming from China. So I was, of course, asked to, to find out what I should do or what we should do as an organization. So, you know, by January 15th, I was reviewing 50 to 100 cases every night, right? Um, so for me, I was going nonstop every day, every weekend from, from mid January through it all. Again, as mentioned, I was on call that first week. So it was just going and going. Um, so I really didn't take my first, I worked like 180 straight days. Uh, cause as a clinician, we were hit very hard in Peel in the Mississauga area as well, where I practice. And as an internist, that's our job. You know, we take care of COVID patients. That's where the airport is, right? Yeah, it's not too far from there, exactly. So, yeah, it was, you know, we didn't have enough doctors, uh, obviously, as as we all know. So I was picking up extra shifts, after extra weeks was going on at TD. I mean, I, my, my role, you know, four or five X <laughs> uh, in terms of time um, of, of my uh, time at TD. So I was, there was one week, I think I worked like 150 hours uh, that week. Uh, it was just a, a really... Uh, interesting time. I mean, for me, what really got me going was adrenaline. You know, I got into medicine uh, and I'm an internist to be able to take care of this. So that really kept me going. And I saw it as sort of a short period of time in my life and just time to step up. And I kind of was like, oh, I guess it's like being a resident again, right? That's kind of my, you know, what was going on in my head, which I know you can empathize with right now, Jeff. But uh, yeah, and then it started getting more tiring. I'd say like second, third year and you know, obviously a lot of conversations that, that we'd have, you know, around, uh, you know, teaching people to take the vaccine and some more difficult ones. It was, 
it was, you know, it started to wear on me uh, after a couple of years, I would say. But, uh, you know, I guess it, yeah, it touched, as you can see, all different aspects of uh, my career. And I launched Home Care Hub February 2020, the month before, too. So it was sort of the launch. There was, you know, I was doing hundreds of hours of TD, and then there was the, I'd be on call, uh, you know, at the hospital. It was, it was quite, quite, quite the year. Let's just, a uh, couple of years, let's just say. Yeah. I mean, I, I have no clue how you made your way through that. Certainly, um, it, you're, you're remarkable in your ability to handle all of that extra stress that came on out of the blue. Um, by reflecting on those experiences and the sudden surge of work and the importance of the work that you do and have done and are doing, um, how, how did the two, three years shape how you look at the rest of your career and the change that you want to make? I'm still figuring it out. I think I haven't had time to, to reflect yet. I still, think still, just, still chugging along. Still like, uh, you know, I just didn't get thrown right back into startup world. And, um, so I asked me in a couple of years and I'll tell you how those, the, the last couple of years have shaped my career. Uh, I'm actually kind of being genuine, genuine here. I, I think it's kind of too fresh to sort of say, yeah. uh, you know, how it's, uh, you know, how it's, uh, affected my, my career yet. So. Yeah. I mean, with everything that you do, I wouldn't be surprised that you don't necessarily have as much time as you would like to sit back and reflect and understand how things have shifted. But, uh, you mentioned home care hub there. Um, I'm, I'm quite interested as to what drove you to, to found that startup specifically, because a lot of your work has been focused on youth and underserved populations before. Um, could you kind of explain your thinking as to why you did that? Yeah, great question. You know, uh, as an internist, you know, we take care of, uh, you know, really technically it's adult medicine, 18 and up, right? Uh, and I always thought I would be focused on that, you know, 18 year old, the, the more adolescent type age group based on the work that I had done. That was sort of the career plan. And, and I still, you know, do some of that work. But, you know, ultimately, I'm an innovator. I'm out there to go solve the problems that I see are necessary to be solved. And as an internist, you know, the reality is doing inpatient medicine as a hospitalist, you're, you're dealing with a largely older adult population, right? Uh, frail uh, patients who, who with, you know, multiple complex chronic conditions, right? So uh, when I came back, I was doing 42 weeks clinically as a hospitalist, right? Uh, which is, which is a lot, um, when, when you're looking at hospitalist type work. And the, the wait times that we would have in our hospital and it, they were outrageous, right? And I had come back from the States. I was down at Cleveland Clinic and other hospitals working, I was doing some other locums, et cetera. And I came back to Canada and I saw the length of stay of patients, you know, 50, 100. 300 days and I was, my, my mind was blown. I said, what was going on? Is this a typo? Because, you know, I, I would get calls from insurance companies after 10 days in the hospital saying, no, oh, Dr. Nicor, why is this patient there? And I'd be like, well, they need two more days here. You know, I'm the doctor seeing the patient. You're calling me from the middle of nowhere trying to tell me how I should, you know, uh, why this person's here. It was just, it was a very different, um, dynamic. When I came back to Canada, I was like, this just doesn't make sense. Why are these people say, staying in the highest cost possible place um, for such a long period of time? And as 
people know are, you know, ALC number, which is really the you know, alternative level of care. Basically, patients that don't need to be in the hospital, there's sometimes 10, 15% doesn't make sense, right? So that's really what got my head thinking about our post-acute care system, how broken it was, how uh, much we're going to be in trouble over the next 20, 30 years if we don't do something to fix it. At the same time, I was reflecting on experiences where, um, you know, my first patient at Jesse Brown VA, Chicago on the clinical wards, you know, fighting with this uh, veteran uh, to not go to a nursing home. I remember one of my first tasks was go discharge this patient, tell him he's got to go to a nursing home. And I spent like 30 minutes trying to convince him. And, you know, I was a third year med student. So I was, I didn't realize that, you know, I probably shouldn't spend 30 minutes to an hour trying to convince this guy. But um, I did that and I couldn't. And, uh, you know, those experiences stick with you and reminds you, you know, nursing homes play an important role in our society, but it, um, you know, there has to be better ways. We need to make our nursing homes better. We need to have a lot of alternatives other than nursing. We need to get people excited about, you know, care, different care and housing places. Assisted living is very expensive. Typically, those are, you know, often $10,000 a month. And, Moving care in the home on a one-on-one basis is is very expensive endeavor as well. People underappreciate it. Um, I know people who are spending fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a month on one-on-one home care in their home. So there had to be better solutions, and that's really what came together. I got together with uh, uh, Jay Vagela and Brian Kwan, who were uh, you know old friends of mine or lawyers. They run a home care agency, and they were seeing many problems in the home care space. Combined with Ibrahim Lalani, my other uh, co-founder is a Waterloo Compside developer, and he had developed some uh, work in the dementia space uh, through a nonprofit he started. So came around our passions, and we we got down to business and uh, created Home Care Hub. Yeah, I mean that's a very concise way of explaining a very complex problem that even in the ED reflects quite severely because the the emergency department is just bedlocked and. There are like eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 hour waits because there's no beds. It's, mm-hmm. it's a systemic problem that's only going to get worse as healthcare needs arise. But to kind of describe very succinctly, um, as you're want to do, how could you summarize it, uh, in terms of what home care hub does to a five year old using mainly monosyllabic and bisyllabic <laughs> words? Absolutely. And it- and I realized, actually, I just told you the the drive to start home care. I didn't even really actually tell you what it was. But, you know, very brief. I had to explain to a five-year-old. So five-year-old's really young, Jeff. You realize, like, like I do. If, if you said 10 or 12, okay, five is small. So breaking it down for a five-year-old, I'd say, yo, Home Care Hub is about moving your grandparents in with your friend's grandparents so they can all live together and have fun and have people come in and take care of them. That's the way I would make it nice and simple for to to maybe, you know, make it for a 15 year old or something, you know, but what I'd say is we create small care homes on demand. So two to 12 people, same neighborhood. Uh, We create these small shared living and care homes. We do it, like I said, on demand, 30% cheaper, higher quality, new innovations, cultural language specific. So, uh, you know, five people who otherwise go to a nursing home, now they can stay uh, right in their local community, hyper-local solutions. That's awesome. So, I mean, your model for Home Care Hub is pretty unconventional overall. Um, as as you've mentioned, um, nursing homes and um, retirement homes really are popping up all over the place. 
provide uh, different levels of care so that people aren't stuck at hospital or when it's inappropriate, stuck at home, unable to take care of themselves uh, because there, there's no one to take care of them at home. What have been your greatest success stories and struggles to date specifically with Home Care Hub? Uh, yeah, so so many here. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, was, I guess I'll start with some, some successes. Um, that we helped through pandemic a lot. Uh, we couldn't create our shared living homes, but we had created a Expedia-like platform where we bring on home care agencies as an aggregator. That was also always part of our plan. We just started with that because of pandemic, et cetera. And you know, we really proved that model out. We got very good at it. Within our first year, we had signed uh, 25, uh, 30 nursing home contracts. We were staffing nursing homes uh, when they couldn't get any caregivers. We, we'd get them like 15, 16 caregivers within 48 hours with uh, you know, interviewed, et cetera, with a decreased likelihood of them uh, leaving as well. So it was, uh, we had a lot of success during that time. Um, so I'm really proud of our team, some of the pivots we had to make there and, and you know, reshaping of our focus uh, slightly. Um, now, as we've sort of gotten, uh, I'm proud we've got a few of our homes going now. It's working great. We've had, you know, I've had patients leave nursing homes and uh, tell me that, you know, their depression has, you know, melted away since moving into our smaller care homes and it's like a family here. So I've seen really great patient successes. And now, you know, at a bit of a bigger level, you know, we're, we're going to soon have a press release of some of the funders in our, in our round and just a great group of, um, you know, investors, et cetera, uh, that we're really excited about. Uh, one was just released yesterday, uh, that, you know, Baycrest, uh, which is one of the top dementia organizations in the world has invested in us this round. So we're very proud of that. We were part of the ARP. Um, accelerator, uh, which was, you know, again, they're probably the largest senior organization in the world, um, you know, out of DC. How proud of that. And then we, we're really excited to scale our solution actually across Wisconsin, uh, as well. We have the Freighter Health System, uh, we're partnering with and we, uh, feel strongly we can really help them out of their post acute care. Um, that some of the challenges they've had. Wisconsin's lost more nursing homes than anywhere in the United States. And if we can solve it in uh, that state, we, uh, we think we can do it anywhere. So we're very excited about that. In terms of challenges, oh my gosh, like startup world, I told you I've been many, I've been planning to do this for like 20 years. I've mentored, you know, hundreds of companies probably along the way, but until you do it in a started a nonprofit, until you do it yourself, wow, or do things come up all the time? It's remarkable. Um, so I have a laundry list of, of things, but, uh, uh, you know, just to give you a couple, you know, when, struggle. I remember early on when it was just like a couple of us years before we even had product, I'm going in and you know, I, I, I'm kind of a hustler. I go in and I just, you know, I'm very boots on the ground. I talk to people, I go to different uh, companies. And I remember I was in Mississauga and I was uh, you know, just talking to a supplier company. Anyways, won't get into all the details. And basically the guy just like threw me out, kicked me out. Um, <laughs> you know, I was just like, and it's funny because that moment I had just been invited to come it was actually you know big uh uh event downtown i couldn't make it actually td had asked me to come to an event uh, with very senior people in government and i just was a last minute thing i wasn't able to make it said well I'm, at least i'll be able to work on my business and i'm like i'm supposed to be meeting with like the deputy prime minister but instead i'm getting kicked out of this local shop here so you know those things happen you know um uh, along the way uh there's just 
you know, so many things. Uh, we, I, I could be running a book on this, hopefully, hopefully one uh, day. But, you know, just generally, when you're selling a new vision, um, something that's, it's interesting because there's, you know, small care homes have existed, right? So there's, to some extent, we're, we're creating a platform. There's nothing new here. There's a lot of new innovations around it, though. But people don't have something to anchor it like telemedicine to, right? Like, you tell them that, they know it, they get it. Or I'm doing X, Y, and Z. It's, it's really hard to sell people on a very new vision for a future to say, right now, I, you know, I check off a box and people go to a nursing home. That's just what it is when I discharge someone as a clinician. And to say, well, we're going to create a whole new path that's never existed. That's, that's hard. You're going up against resistance and, um, but we're up for it and we're, we're, we're excited, uh, to do it. And we've, we think we've got a formula to make it happen. So, mm -hmm. you, you had mentioned this, uh, throughout your, your, uh, I guess statements a little in the past five to 10 minutes. But overall, what is your long term 10 to 15 year vision for home care hub overall? Yeah, I mean, we're out to change the face of post-acute care, right? We're creating a national distributed network of these small care homes. We're going to put tens, hundreds of thousands of patients in these homes, families and patients. So they're, they're going to start to love the care and housing that we create. It's no more of this discharging someone to some facility that they're kicking and screaming and going to. And there'll always be a little bit of that because people, when they have to leave their home, there's always going to be a little bit of that, but largely speaking, people are going to be happy. People are going to age gracefully in our homes and the whole world is going to, going to change when we're done with this. Awesome. I, I really hope that future does come to life before we close off. And I, I've really enjoyed conversation. Um, do you have any particular pluggables to plug? I always want to make sure that our guests are able to at least share their passions or one project and maybe it's home care hub that they're very interested in sharing. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, you know, I, I touch a lot of different parts of the health system. So if anything resonated here, reach out. But, uh, you know, obviously on the home care hub side, we are, as I mentioned, closing around imminently here. If there's people interested, you know, funds, et cetera, uh, reach out ASAP uh, to me. We're looking again for hospital partners, et cetera. Uh, uh, we basically go where people are going to partner with us. We're Wisconsin because they're an incredible partner. We have some other health systems we're about to partner with uh, as well. We'll, we'll make those areas a priority with engaged partners who want us to help, uh, them solve their problem. Right. So reach out and then just general, like, um, another plug is just for people in a, a we mentioned young people to just sort of stick with things and follow your passions and have perseverance and, um, you know, just keep, uh, remembering to stay, stay, true to your mission and uh, find things that, that have positive impacts in, in people's lives. So that's it. Awesome. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you, Jeff. You're, you're an amazing host and keep up uh, the wonderful work that you're doing. And thank you for having me today. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, the best way to support us is to go to your podcast platform, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you like, and to give us a rating and a recommendation or a comment so that others can best find us. If you can't do that, then we'd really appreciate it if you could share your favorite episode with those that you care about and who you think would find our work interesting. Till next time.